0: When it doesn't work, there we go. <laughs> Good, morning. Good morning. This is the season of prophecy. Amen. <laughs> That's not normally what you think of when you think of Christmas, is it? Did you know that every prophecy in the Bible in some way, you know, is pointing towards Jesus and the character of God? Amen. A revelation of who God is and how he's working in our world. Uh, and yet, when we look at Daniel and Revelation, what we usually see is, well, we get distracted. Our, it's like, uh, you know, when you're, you're doing something you're supposed to do, and then, uh, you know, something over here distracts you. Well, we get distracted by the beast's. And the timelines and all these things. And, and we forget that actually, the whole point of any time we see one of these apocalyptic prophecies is that it's pointing to the power and love and faithfulness and patience of God. Amen. And it's revealing Jesus. So, just as an example, um, there's Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, a prophecy that you're, I'm sure, very familiar with, except you probably have never thought of this as a prophecy. Here we go. It's uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus replied, No, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Did you catch the prophecy? It's a time prophecy. Maybe. Okay, some of you are getting it. All right. So Jesus goes on to tell the parable of a servant who um, is forgiven 10,000 talents by his master, and then right away goes and does not forgive the, the other fellow servant that owed him a little bit of money. Remember that parable? Well, usually that's what we focus on is the parable and how forgiveness works and how like because God has forgiven us so much, we should forgive others, right? But we miss the 70 times 7 and we don't realize this formula is really about a prophecy. Most people, when they say 70 times seven, uh, they're, they're looking at how many times you should forgive, right? So it's, uh, Peter says, how many times should I forgive? The common thing was three. He's being generous, and he says seven times, and Jesus is like, no. And then he gives you a number, and you're thinking, well, that's the number of times I should forgive. And so we say, oh, 490, well, it's just too many times to count, so just keep forgiving, right? That's what we usually say but if you were a Jew in Jesus' day and he said seventy sevens or seventy times seven, what you would have heard or what you should have heard is a prophecy from Daniel. Did you make the connection now? All right. Well, okay. Now you might realize um, but the time of the the Messiah, the first coming of Jesus, was a known factor. It wasn't like uh, we're in this waiting period till the second coming, and no one knows the day or the hour. That was not true of the time of Jesus' birth and, and uh, his life and ministry. That was a known thing because there was a prophecy. In Galatians chapter four verse four, Paul tells us, but when, when the fullness of time had come, when the time prophecy, was at an end. That's what he's saying. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Luke tells a story of Simeon and Anna who were both, um, according to Luke 2.25, waiting for the consolation of Israel. How could they have known unless they had some kind of a time prophecy that would give them a clue as to when the Messiah would arrive? This week and next week, we're going to be studying Matthew chapters 1 and 2. Today's topic is promised child, and we need to look a little bit at the promises that lead to Jesus, but we're going to specifically look at the promises in Matthew chapter 1. But I feel like we really need the background that leads us to Matthew chapter 1, uh, the background that a Jew should have had at that time. Uh, so let's turn, before we go to Matthew, to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 24 through 27, and just kind of, uh, there's a lot in the prophecy, we're not going to look at all the details, uh, but we're going to look at maybe two or three highlights. So let's start with Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, To make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Notice that there's this time period that's decreed or appointed or cut off um, is uh, the Hebrew word. And, and the, the prophecy or the time period is for Daniel's people and for the holy city. So there's something really special about the Jews and the, the city of, of David in this uh, prophecy. And then the, the point of the prophecy or what would happen during that prophecy is all these things uh, make an end of sins. What brings an end of sins? Uh, Make reconciliation for iniquity. Who can do that? Uh, To bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up vision and prophecy. Specifically, prophecy about the one who would be anointed, which is called the Messiah. So from the very beginning of this prophecy, we have to recognize this is a, a prophecy about the Messiah. And it gives us 70 sets of seven, 70 weeks. And now if you do a little math, what is 70 times seven? 490. Now, uh, 490 days, because a week is seven days, right? But in prophecy, there's this uh, little thing that the Bible does, and it takes a prophetic day, and it makes it into a literal year. And you can read about it in Numbers chapter uh, 14, Ezekiel chapter 4. Both of them describe experiences where God says a day for a year. So if a day in prophecy equals a year, 490 days would be 490 Years. Okay, so we have 490 years from some time until Messiah would come. Would you like to know when Messiah would come? Well, then you've got you to gotta find the beginning of this 490 years, right? So in Daniel 9.25, we get the beginning. It says, "'Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, the street shall be built again, the wall, even in troublesome times.'" Did you notice how it has this 7 and then 62? And that's the first 69 weeks of the prophecy, because 7 plus 62 equals 69. Okay, so so that's 483 years. But it starts with 7 weeks, or 49 years. And I don't think that's a coincidence, because in the first 7 weeks, the first 49 years of this prophecy, it was supposed to be the building of the temple and the rebuilding of the streets and the walls. Daniel, of course, was an exile in Babylon, and during his time, Jerusalem had been sacked by the the Babylonians, the the temple had been destroyed, and the promise that he's being given here is a promise of the rebuilding of the temple. So the first 49 years were about rebuilding the temple, the streets, and the walls, and you can read that story in Ezra and Numbers, if you want to, not Numbers, Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah, if you want to explore that time period a little bit more. And you'll find when you read, especially the story of Nehemiah, well, both of them, there's lots and lots of troublesome times in the building of the temple and the rebuilding of the walls and the streets. So this prophecy is being fulfilled exactly as it was described. Now, if you read um, in Ezekiel, uh, or sorry, Ezra chapter 7, you'll find that. The decree that's described in Daniel 9.25 to restore and rebuild Jerusalem is a decree given by Artaxerxes, and we know from history that that decree was given in 457 B.C. Now, if you do a little bit of math, 483 years later, 69 weeks in the prophecy, that would get you to 27 A.D. Now, do you think it's a coincidence that Jesus began his ministry about that time? He was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended on him and the Father speaks in this thundering voice, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. No, I don't think it's a coincidence at all that the Messiah was anointed by the Holy Spirit at the very time the prophecy in Daniel 9.25 said the Messiah would be anointed. Now read verse 26. Daniel 9.26 says, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Notice that phrase, the Messiah will be cut off. And yet, not, there, there's something outward, right? Not for himself. The whole point of the prophecy is about the Messiah, and it points people's attention to the, the, the Messiah doing something with sin, uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Bible says, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So if you were a Jew in Jesus' day, you should have been aware of this prophecy and you should have known that the Messiah's whole goal would be to be cut off, to make an end of sins, to make uh, atonement for iniquity, that his job would be a job of forgiveness. Do you remember what uh, Peter was asking Jesus? Jesus how often should I forgive? Jesus responds with a prophecy that points to the work of the Messiah being a work of forgiveness. Uh, There's one other point we need to pay attention to in this prophecy. Now, if you read the rest of this particular verse, you'll see uh, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war, desolations are determined. We'll get to that in just a minute. Hold on to that thought. But jump to verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. What ends the need for sacrifice and offering? The sacrifices and offerings were a symbol that pointed to the Messiah who would come and through his blood take our sins. Every lamb pointed to the Messiah. The only time you end the need for sacrifice is when the sacrifice, the real sacrifice has been made. And so when the Messiah comes and his blood is spilled, there's no more need for all these lambs and offerings to be made. And Jesus on the cross, he dies. And in that moment, the veil that, that separates the holy and most holy places is torn in two. And... No longer is there a need for sacrifices and offerings. In the middle of a week, what a week is seven days or seven years in literal time if this is prophetic. So what's the middle of a week? How many years would that be? Three and a half years. How many years was Jesus in ministry between the time He was baptized and the time He was cut off on the cross? Three and a half years. So we're, we're tracking with the prophecy pretty closely Notice this 70-week prophecy on the, on the screen. So you end up with 27 AD when Jesus was uh, baptized and, and he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. On 31 AD, he uh, meets the cross and um, he is cut off. And then at the end of that prophecy, three and a half years later, you get to 34 AD. Now it's interesting because... Daniel 9.24 says, 70 years are determined or cut off, assigned for your people and for your city. When Jesus was raised from the dead in 31 AD, and he told the disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel, he said, start first in which city? Jerusalem, and then go to Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, they did that, and in Jerusalem, they preached the gospel. Thousands were converted but uh, they did not meet with a good reception from the priests and the leaders of the, the Jewish people. And, and so many of them went back to the countries because they had been converted to Christianity uh, as part of uh, the Pentecost time, and many people were in Jerusalem that didn't live there, and they left, taking their belief in Jesus with them. But the, the Christian church that remained in Jerusalem began to be persecuted. In fact, there's... Um, well, I'll get to that in just a second, but there's, there's a, um, a challenge that they face, and in Acts chapter 5, you hear a bit about that challenge, but by Acts chapter 7, you find that the Jews have completely rejected Jesus, and they persecute the church so much that the church has to, to flee out of Jerusalem, and they end up taking the gospel with them. 70 years or 70 weeks rather 490 years are determined cut off for the people of Jerusalem for Daniel's people and after that the gospel goes to the world now i, I think i think this is a, a special prophecy jesus fulfills every point of it and and in the prophecy is a promise that the gospel isn't just for the jews The gospel is for everybody. The Messiah isn't just coming for the Jews. The gospel is for everybody. Just out of curiosity, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of us here are Jews? If the gospel wasn't for everybody in the world, then you and I would have no hope. Matthew chapter 1. Turn with me there if you don't mind. Matthew begins his story with this phrase the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The Greek word for genealogy is literally Genesis. He's starting a new story. There's the story in Genesis chapter 1, and then there's the story in Matthew chapter 1. And both of them are a Genesis, a beginning, a story of beginnings. And in this particular story of beginnings, he says, Jesus' beginnings were in David and Abraham. Now, this is important because um, the, the first thing he's talking about is pointing our attention to this Messiah that was promised by Daniel, uh, the anointed one, the Messiah. And, and he says that he's the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, Abraham was given a promise by God, a promise that through him, the Messiah would come. You can find it in Genesis twelve three, and it says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you, and in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. How many families? All families. God's intention was that the good news of God's redeeming love would reach the whole world, not just Abram's family. Uh, But Abraham was given this promise that that, uh, he would be the father of nations, and that through him, through his seed, through his children, all nations of the earth would be blessed. Matthew goes on to list this genealogy that ties Jesus to Abraham, proving that he's the fulfillment of this promise in Genesis twelve three. Now, I mentioned this idea that the 70 weeks is kind of a probationary period for the, the Jews. Um, they either accept the gospel and themselves take it to the world, or they reject the gospel and God takes it to the world anyway. What did Jesus say when the Jews' leaders were telling the people to be quiet and stop saying uh, uh, nice things to him as he was coming into Jerusalem? Yeah, if, if they don't cry out, then the rocks will cry out. The gospel will go to the world, whether the Jews take it there or not, was kind of this 70-week prophecy uh, context. But in Matthew chapter 1, you find that that he's describing the genealogy of Jesus, and built into this genealogy is the promise that the gospel is going to go to all the world, because you have people like Tamar, a Canaanite from Timnah, who is a descendant, uh, uh, ancestor rather, of Jesus. And then you have Rahab, a Canaanite from Jericho, and Ruth, a Moabite, all in this story. David also received a promise from God that he would be the father of the Messiah. 2 Samuel 7, 12 says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Uh, Which king rules forever? Jesus, there's only one king that can rule forever. He's the one who lives forever. Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. But do you remember in the 70-week prophecy how the Messiah would make an end of sin and would be an atonement for iniquity? Well, Matthew builds into this genealogy where he ties Jesus to David, these 14 generations of people. He builds in people who had a lot of iniquity that needed atoning for. For example, David himself. In, um, in this story, uh, Matthew chapter one, verse six is where he describes it. You see David, he uh, has an affair that ends with murder, all kinds of terrible stuff, just really awful story and uh, and it 's through this affair that Solomon is born, and Solomon ends up being the ancestor of Jesus. Matthew makes sure that this story is. Front and center in your mind, when he does not name Bathsheba by name, he simply says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This solution to sin is front and center in Matthew's explanation of Jesus' origins. Matthew, he cites 14 generations from Abraham to David. Another 14 generations from David to the exile, and then 14 generations from the exile to Jesus. Abraham had a promise. David had a promise. Do you think those that went into exile had a promise too? Yes, the answer is yes, they did. If you look in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, you will find the source material for Matthew's story of the Nativity. It's the promise to the exiles. Promise made to Abraham, promise fulfilled in Jesus. Promise made to David, promise fulfilled in Jesus. Promise made to the exiles, let me tell you a story of Jesus. Here, let's go. Uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That word Emmanuel is so important. It's the whole story of salvation. When Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God. Isaiah says, your sins have separated you from God. And the, the whole goal of salvation is to make at one to make atonement for iniquity. Our iniquity has separated us from God, but God is making atonement through the Messiah so that we can be back together with Him, God with us, Emmanuel. This is a whole story of, of, uh, of, of the, the gospel here. Matthew's book begins with this generations thing. Fourteen generations, you've got promise given to Abraham, a blessing for all nations. Fourteen generations later, a promise to David, a king would reign forever. Fourteen generations, uh, the promise given to the exiles, a virgin would conceive and uh, this child, God with us, would be born. Fourteen generations, and now Jesus is here. And he says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by who? The Holy Spirit. Spirit. Matthew wants us to be absolutely clear that there's no ambiguity about this promise from Isaiah. Some people read Isaiah and they say, well, virgin really just means a young child or young lady, a young woman, right? That's all it means. And they try to dismiss the idea that this was miraculous, but Matthew is super clear. She was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. No man had any part in this story. Um, the Holy Spirit is the one who brought this conception. And he, he says, when he gets to, to Joseph, the guy who's going to be the adoptive dad, um, an angel comes to him. He was going to put Mary away because he, you know, she's pregnant out of wedlock and they were engaged and this was definitely a scandal. And, and then an angel comes to him and, and uh, as he's considering these things and the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to make Mary your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Did you hear... Daniel chapter 9 uh, kind of phrases in this. He will do what? Save from what? Sins. He will make an end of sins. This is the promise that Daniel 9, the 70-week prophecy, has about the Messiah. Some people are a little bit concerned because he doesn't call him Emmanuel. Why doesn't the angel say, and you shall name him Emmanuel, for he shall save his people from their sins? Well, he does. Jesus means Yahweh, Yahweh saves. Now, if Jesus, the one who is with us, is Yahweh who saves, guess what? He's also Emmanuel. But not just God with us. It's very clear. We want Jesus, we want the Messiah to be known as the one who saves from the very beginning, from, his, from the get-go. He is the Savior of mankind. Matthew ends his account of Jesus' birth by simply saying, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she, had conceived, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Just to be clear, there was no involvement from a man in this story of Jesus' birth, okay? Promise made, promise kept. That's pretty much the story of the entire Bible. The Old Testament is the promise being made. The New Testament is the promise being kept, and all the stories and results of that. Well, that's Matthew chapter 1. Promises, fulfillment, it's exciting, right? Now, remember, you're a Jew, and you're reading Matthew in around 85 AD. And Matthew's all throughout the book. If you read the book of Matthew, you'll find that over and over and over again, he's, he's like, as it was written, as it was written by the prophets, as it was written in the Old Testament. And he keeps pointing back and identifying these things that happen in Jesus' life as exact fulfillments of the prophecy given in the Old Testament. So you're a Jew, and you're reading through Matthew, and you find all these promises. But probably one of the most significant promises, and promises with hope, is the prophecy of the 70-week time period that Jesus reminded them of in that little response to Peter's question about forgiveness. Why would that be significant to you, a Jew, in 85 AD? I'll tell you why. Remember that little piece in uh, Daniel 9, 25 and and 27, where it talked about the desolator and destruction and things like this? Uh, Well, Jesus comes in 27 AD, and for three and a half years, he preaches. And then in... uh, Three and a half years later, after he he dies, they reject Christianity, right? And that, that whole story happens. But what happened then isn't the beginning of that story. What happened in 34 AD, in the rejection of Jesus, kind of begins back years before, some 30 years before, when Jesus was born, but it wasn't the birth of Jesus that was significant. It was the census. See, the Roman census made the Jews really unhappy. It made them feel like slaves, one uh, writer talks about. And, uh, and so from this census comes the zealot party. We read about it in Acts chapter 5. I told you I'd come to Acts chapter 5, didn't I? Acts chapter 5, verse 37. Gamaliel, he's one of the the leaders in the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is this group of people that uh, kind of rules over the spiritual and and, and other lives of of the Jews um, any way they can, except for what Rome uh, prohibits. But uh, the Sanhedrin are meeting and they're discussing this problem with the Christians, and it's not quite 34 AD. And Gamaliel is trying to give them some uh, caution. Don't uh, go too far with these Jews or with these Christians quite yet. And he, he argues that um, during the time of the census, there have been these uh, you know, people that have risen up and they go away and this Christian group is going to go away too. That was kind of his argument. And in Acts 5.37, he says, After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. Now, it's true that those who followed directly this particular guy were scattered, but the the group of zealots continued to grow and continued to cause trouble. They were literally terrorists, as we would define terrorists today. They were terrorists against Rome, trying to get Rome out, doing all kinds of um, unnice, violent things um, to try to, to push them away. In fact, it's from the zealot group that Jesus recruits one of his disciples. And then... The question comes with this guy who's been teaching for three and a half years, is he a zealot too? No. In fact, Pilate, as Jesus is bound and uh, they've brought him there for a trial, Pilate considers Jesus and whether he is a zealot or not. And after a few minutes, he says, I find no fault in this guy. Uh, But trying to please the Jews, he brings out Jesus and the guy who really is a zealot, Barabbas. And he says, which one do you want? Do you want Jesus or do you want the zealot? Who do they choose? They chose Barabbas, the zealot. And they continued to choose that path. Every chance they got, they seemed to choose that path. And Daniel 9 predicts that this would would happen because at the end of that period, um, it says that the, the Messiah would be cut off. And Jesus, on the cross, is dying in place of a zealot. Daniel 9 knows that this is about to happen, and he, it also knows that three and a half more years later, there would be this rejection of Jesus, complete and total rejection. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. That word decreed means to divide, to cut off. Seventy weeks are given for your people until something will happen. God, the story of the 70-week prophecy is a story of God's patience. He is waiting, 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 hoping, longing, three and a half years of Jesus' teachings and miracle after miracle after miracle, three and a half more years of the disciples' teaching and miracle after miracle after miracle, and still their hard-heartedness drives Jesus away. And instead of choosing the path of Jesus, they choose the path of the zealot, and they begin persecuting the people. Um, Saul, we know him as Paul, he was converted, but Saul begins as a zealous man pushing the Christians out of Jerusalem, even chasing them, uh, trying to, to um, attack them and, and, and uh, bring them back to Jerusalem under trial. So Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel prevails, and he says... Uh, caution, let's not go too far. But by Acts chapter seven, you read the story of a guy named Stephen. And Stephen is brought before this anhedron and he describes with the glory of heaven shining from his face, he describes Jesus sitting at the right hand of the father and they say blasphemy and they take him out and they kill him. There was was no uh, caution exercised at that moment. They went all the way to destroy any record of Jesus that they could. So the gospel, it finds no root in Jerusalem. Jerusalem ends up being one of the smallest Christian churches. But as the Christians leave and they go to the uh, different countries, Ephesus and Colossae and Corinth and Rome and others, uh, churches start popping up all over the place and the Christian, the, the gospel message finds fertile ground in the Gentile believers, in these pagan nations. The Christian church sprouts up. 34 AD, the official position of the Jewish nation was to reject the Messiah. 36 years later, in 70 AD, this zealous attitude of the Jews had grown so much. By 66, what we know today as the Jewish-Roman War began. It was an all-out war. By 70, a guy named Titus surrounded Jerusalem, besieged it, and ultimately conquered it, destroying people. It was a really, really bad scene. If you read about it um, through history, it is, it is not nice to read. Uh, one of the things that happened in that destruction of Jerusalem is um, the, the temple Was burned, and the gold started to melt into the the rocks. And so they the the soldiers and the looters they disassembled the temple in order to get that gold, fulfilling a prophecy that Jesus had made in Matthew 24, 2, where he said, There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The desolator described in Daniel chapter 9 is Rome, and they do destroy the sanctuary, just as Daniel 9:27 had described destroy it completely. The Jews of A.D. 85, they were reading Matthew's gospel having just lost a significant war and having lost their way of salvation. Because how can you be saved if you can't bring an offering to the temple? The temple is gone. And Matthew comes with a promise that the Messiah had taken away the offering and the sacrifice. The Messiah had brought atonement for sin. The Messiah had come. When Peter asked Jesus how often he should forgive, Jesus' answer pointed to the character of God. Seventy times seven was the kind of patience that God had with the Jews. Seventy times seven pointed to the anointing of the Messiah. Seventy times seven pointed to the Messiah being cut off on the cross. Seventy times seven was the sacrificial cost of forgiveness and the long patience of a God who couldn't bear to be rejected by his people and yet couldn't let his people prevent salvation from reaching the world. You and I don't have 490 years. In order to make our decision, we have... 70, 80 years, nobody knows. Some of us have much less than that. In that time of patience, God gives us promises. He reveals his love to us. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what will we do with it? What decision will we make? Like the Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin, we have a choice. Will we choose the path of peace that Jesus gives us, the way of salvation and life, Or will we choose the self-directed path to so-called freedom that the zealots took? Which will we choose? There's only one path to life, only one source of joy, only one way to freedom. Won't you choose Jesus today?